All right, friends, uh, we are in the book of Nehemiah, right? That's where we left off, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Let me bring up my notes here. Sounds great. Look at all the Bibles turning. That is fantastic. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. If you need a Bible, we have some right outside. We'd be happy to give it to you if you don't have one. If you have your own, bring your own so you can get familiar with it and used to it and know where all the stuff is. Let's go before the Lord. Father, thank you for this time now to dig into the Word. And Lord, we begin to pray even now for, uh, for Pastor Joe as he's going to come and share with us in a few weeks. Uh, Lord, we pray you would prepare his heart. Lord, you'd give him, Lord, a unique message, not just one that he has sort of shared over and over again, but a unique message for this congregation in this place at this time. And Lord, that you would use his words to both equip us and encourage us and inspire us and challenge us, Lord, uh, to see the Muslim population that is around us as uh, just a fertile field for the gospel, uh, men and women and young people that need uh, a saving relationship with you. And so uh, use that time and continue to use that. And Lord, keep giving us a heart for the lost, whoever they may be, we ask. And Lord, as we look into your word, we pray for your faithfulness once again to come and speak to us and challenge us and to grow us and uh, to use this word in a very good and positive way. And so we submit ourselves to you, and we invite your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the middle of chapter 2, so if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of uh, some things. Uh, last week, we considered this reality that Nehemiah had been praying for four months. Chapter 1 to chapter 2, that space in between there, that he had been praying for four months that God would open up some doors for him to do what he was putting into his heart to do, and that was to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild uh, the city walls. And as we saw last week, the, the doors were suddenly open. One day, had no idea. He just went into work like he did every other day, and there's the opportunity. He knew it was what the Lord had presented. He faithfully stepped through that door, even though it was very scary for him to do so, and he laid out his heart with the king. And he simply said, King, my city, my, the city of my father's lies in ruins and something has to be done. And the king responds, he says, well, what do you think we should do? What, do? what do you have in mind? And what he had in mind is that he would go and that the king would give him some time off and he would give him the resources and that they'd be able to go back. And again, imagine the great relief that Nehemiah felt when the king responded favorably. Rather than having him killed, rather than saying, you brought me down, you had this sad face, you're not allowed to have that in my presence. Rather than say, that's not my problem and it shouldn't be yours either, now get back to work. Or anything like that, the king said, well, what do you need? How long will you be gone? Or what are the things that you're going to need to get this job done? Well, as we pick up today in verse 9, Nehemiah now has made it to the city. So verse 9 of this chapter is going to begin to look at what he's going to do when he gets there. He had taken an 800-mile trip from Susa to Jerusalem, and now it was time for him to get down to work. So let's look at the first two verses. It says, then it came to the governors, excuse me, then I came to the governors of the province, beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Well, you recall that Nehemiah, if you were with us, his request of the king was, send with me, I want to go, and I'd like you to send with me letters. It says, to the governors of the province beyond the river. That was verse 7, you may recall. And those letters, as I pointed out last time, they were essentially granting Nehemiah permission to go 
and to make sure that when he traveled from one place to the other over 800 miles, that he would be safe. That if any gangs, anybody came up to bother him, he would just simply pull out the letter with the king's seal on it, and it says, if you mess with me, you mess with the king, and everyone would let him go. And that he would be able to safely make his way there to Jerusalem. But even more than that, when he got to Jerusalem, he's just some guy coming into town. They don't know who he is. But that he would be able to come into town and say, here, here's a letter, governor, from the king, granting me permission to do what I'm about to tell you the king said that we could do. And so he has these letters, this decree that he could rebuild these walls. What we also learn here in verse 9 is that the king, in addition to letters, permission, sent him a guard of men or a guard of officers that would go with him. So look at the end of verse 9. It said, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And I'm, I'm sure Nehemiah was delighted when the king said, Hey, do you, wanna, you want me to send part of the army with you as well so you get there safely? Yes, I would love for you to send me a part of the army. Now, I think that's interesting. Because you may recall a few, a few months ago when we were looking at the book of Ezra, that Ezra asked permission of a different king, but asked permission of a king to go and was thinking, this is what I suggested, I hope he asked if I want an army. I hope he asked if I want an army. And the king never did. And Ezra says at that point in time, I think we have the verse, chapter 8, verse 22, Ezra said, I was ashamed to actually ask the king for an army. Because Ezra was saying, it's going to be awesome. God's going to do it. God's going to be great. God is strong. Well, it's going to be scary. No, the Lord is going to be with us and protect us. And could I have an army to protect us too? He said he was ashamed to ask that because it would sort of make it look like he didn't really trust God. So he never asked. Nehemiah, on the other hand, is asked, you want an army to go with you? Or I'm going to send an army with you, the king says. And he says, great, I'll take it. He doesn't say, no, we're going to trust God here. Now, here's why I bring it up at this particular point. Ezra is ashamed to ask for help. Nehemiah gladly accepts the help. And the point is this. The point is, it's not necessarily wrong in this instance here, this scenario, to receive the help that is being offered to them. But it, rather, the question is, how is the Lord leading? Is the, the Lord was leading Nehemiah to receive the help. The Lord was leading Ezra to not ask for the help, or if you will, to reject it. So how is the Lord directing? And the point that I want to make for us is, if you ever get into a situation where you need to ask the king for an army, you could do that. That's okay. That's one application that you could take from this. But the more likely scenario that you're going to be faced with is this, is that we need to be careful that we're not judging folks just because someone else or someone, some other ministry is doing things differently from how the Lord is leading you. So let me re-say that. We need to be careful that we don't judge other people or other ministries because the Lord is directing them to do things a little bit different than how he might be directing you to do it. And at the same time, we have to be careful that we're not consumed with imitating other ministries and the way that the Lord is doing it in that particular ministry because it seems like they're having some success. And so suddenly we have to do it that way because that's the way for success. Now the key is this. The key is that we are open to what the Lord is different doing. Both of these men are in the right even though their methods are different. And the reason why they are in the right is because that's what God told them to do. And they were in tune with God's leading. God doesn't lead all of us in the exact same way. And in fact, in some cases, He may lead you and I in different ways. And here's the key. The key is that we are in step with His Word. So He's never going to lead us in a way that contradicts His Word. He's in, we're in step with His Word, and we're following the leading of His Spirit. And that's the key here. And this ministry over there, or that person over there, may do it slightly different, and that's fine. 
And we let them handle that between them and the Lord. But we seek the Lord for ourselves and we follow the Lord for how He is directing us. And so, first quick point here, Nehemiah gladly accepts this guard that's going to go with him. Now, in every one of our studies that we've been looking at, and we'll probably keep doing it through the book, I've been trying to point out to you examples of Nehemiah um, as a leader. Examples that he establishes as a leader and some of the principles of his leadership. And here in verse 9, we see another one, and it's in the opening word. Look at there, verse 9, it says, Then I came to the governors. And the principle is this. The principle is that Nehemiah actually went. You see, lots of people, lots of us, we have our hearts touched about a situation. And lots of us, we forego criticizing, as I mentioned a few weeks back, and instead we agonize, we, we pray, and we're not criticizing everyone for what's wrong, but we seek the Lord. And lots of us wait on the Lord for wisdom and the proper timing and that God will show us what He wants us to do. But many of us, if we're honest, many of us actually stop short of going, don't we? We stop short of actually going out and doing that which God has opened the door. How many of us have had a case where the king said, well, what is it you need? And we chickened out. And we didn't open up our mouths and say it. Or when the king says, well, here, this is going to be it. We say, well, I'm not going there. A place like a third world country. I'm not going there. Let somebody else go and do it. So the principle of leadership is this, that Nehemiah actually goes. Praying, talking, planning, all those things are well and good. But God's desire for us is to be the man or woman that will actually go and actually do. And so, again, I'll ask this question that I've been asking. What has God been laying on your heart to do? And then second question is, what are you going to do about it? Nehemiah knows what God laid on his heart, and he goes and he does, if you will. He goes to Jerusalem. Now, the second point is this that I want to make, and that is that true leadership, it labors right alongside of everyone else. Now, maybe you've seen this graphic floating around on Facebook. I don't know how I found it again. I saw it, and I said, that's interesting, and I, I hunted it down again. But maybe you've seen this graphic here. It reminds me of the Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics and stuff like that. But you have the boss sitting up on the table there, up on, at his desk or her desk, and then you have the other one where the boss is out there actually leading the group of workers. And the idea is this, that the type of leader that God uses and the type of person that people want to follow are those that actually labor together with those that they've been charged to lead. And Nehemiah, he demonstrates that, and we see that in the fact that he actually went. And so Nehemiah, he ends up in Jerusalem, and, and there he is. Nehemiah, these military officers, maybe a few others that they picked up along the way, and they've returned to Jerusalem. They've taken these letters from the king with the king's seal. They presented them to the various officials, granting them permission to do these things. Uh, and they begin, Nehemiah is about to get ready to begin work on the city walls. And I, I suspect, again, I, I just sort of try to make the situation real. I don't know if this actually happened. But I, success, I suspect word began to filter around the town. Hey, there's this guy from the capital city here, uh, Nia something or another. Uh, and apparently he wants to do some things. And, and he's got a whole bunch of people with him. And he brought a big army with him. And word begins to sort of filter around. Some are probably interested, oh yeah, they're not home watching TV, so nothing else to do. Let's go down and find out what they're about. Others perhaps were indifferent, thinking things like, yeah, just another one coming into town thinking he's going to make a difference, but nobody ever does. Maybe they're indifferent to the whole thing. I suspect many of Jewish descent there were rather pleased by this development. Great, we'll take any help we can get. Who's here and what's his job? Uh, but others, as we see in verse 10, look, 
not of Jewish descent, but we're not pleased. Look at verse 10. It says, When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now we're going to be introduced three, to three different people various times during the book of Nehemiah that just sort of resurface and continually oppose the work of Nehemiah. Two of them are inter- introduced here. Look at verse 10. It says, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. If you skip down in your Bibles to verse 19 of the chapter, you'll see there's another fellow introduced, a guy by the name of Geshem, who is the Arab. Apparently the only one. He's Geshem the Arab. Uh, And so opposition. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that there is a contingency of opposition to the work that Nehemiah is setting out to do. And I I say it shouldn't surprise us because when we were looking at Ezra, Joshua, and Zerubbabel, they encountered opposition, right? Remember that in the early chapters of Ezra? Ezra, in the latter chapters of the book, he encountered opposition. If we look back to the Scriptures as a whole, Noah encountered opposition. Abraham encountered opposition. Joseph and Moses, and the children of Israel as a whole, and David, and Solomon, and Mordecai. And in the New Testament, the disciples experienced opposition. Certainly the Lord Himself did. The Apostle Paul experienced opposition. Do you get the point? The point is simply this, that we're all going to face this opposition. And as long as these Jews, when they sat there in Jerusalem, or Nehemiah, when he was back in the capital city, as long as he thought about the work, or he prayed about the work, or even when he made some internal plans about the work, nobody really cared. And there was no real opposition to those things, thinking about, praying about, even planning about. But once they set out to actually do the work that God is putting on their heart to do, then comes the opposition. And I think we could all agree that the enemy doesn't really care if you're thinking about working for God, or perhaps even if you begin making some plans to work for God, but when the enemy really steps up his game is when you actually set out and start working for God. So I'm sure you've come to discover that. To discover the opposition as soon as you've stepped out in faith to actually do that which God has laid upon your heart to do. You know, so I think about the student. I I learned about a daily quiet time to take time in the Word daily when I was in college. And a group of us friends, we were learning these principles and things like that. And so there you are in your dorm room, and you're reading all manner of things. You're reading on your phone, you're scrolling down, reading all kinds of stuff, or you're reading emails and blogs and newsletters and books, and nobody really cares a bit. But then you sit to have that daily time in the Lord and to make your way through the Bible, and suddenly everyone thinks you're a loon because you're sitting there, you're going to sit and read and do all these things, or you're with your lunch group at work, and you guys talk about everything under the sun, but when you step out and you bring up Jesus or you bring up morality, or you bring up a Christian worldview, all of a sudden, you've become an agitator there at work. Despite the fact that all other manner of conversation has been occurring there. You can anticipate opposition in your efforts to accomplish the work of God. And since you're anticipating it, then you won't let it discourage you. Because you knew it was going to happen anyway. And it shouldn't be a surprise to you. The opposition is just a part of the process. If you're just going to talk about stuff, you're not much of a threat. But once you actually step up, then the enemy sits up and he takes notice. Now, some of us may hear that and we think, well, then I'm not stepping out. I, I, don't, I want peace in my life, not opposition. Well, here's an interesting thing that I see with this passage is the problem is this. These folks want peace in their life. I don't want any opposition. The problem is they didn't have peace in their life anyway. And so 
The walls of their city were broken down. That means they were at constant threat of attack. And that meant the life that they were living was simply surviving day to day, but they certainly weren't thriving as God would have them to do so. And as we learned in chapter 1, you may recall, they were a humbled people that were living in perpetual shame and perpetual trouble. So it seems to me this way. You weigh out your options. You can have trouble and shame, stress and anxiety, and not be accomplishing the will of God. Or you can have trouble and shame and stress and anxiety and be accomplishing the will of God. It seems to me more logical to take the latter option there. And Nehemiah chooses to do that. He chooses the latter, and the inevitability is that opposition is going to come. Now in his case, the opposition is Sanballat, Tobiah, and a guy by the name of Geshem. Now Sanballat, as verse 10 indicates, is a fellow that is a a Horonite. He's mentioned six times in this particular book, and he comes from a city that was just east of Israel, it was called Haranium, in the land of the Moabites. So he's a foreigner living in a foreign, well, he's living in this land, but from a foreign land. And Sanballat, we're going to see, he takes great exception to Nehemiah uh, and the people of Israel that are coming to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the second fellow we're introduced to is a guy by the name of Tobiah. And we discover about Tobiah in verse 10 that he is an Ammonite. Again, that's a foreign country or a foreign people. But what's interesting about Tobiah's name is this. Tobiah is a Hebrew name. And it's of Hebrew descent. It's a name which means Jehovah is good. So somewhere along the line, this Ammonite has Hebrew influence or Jewish influence in his life. And like Sanballat, he too is mentioned six times. And every time in the book that he is mentioned, he is, it's in the context of opposition to the work of God. So as a foreigner... Sanballat represents opposition from without. As a Jew, Tobiah represents opposition, if you will, from within. And again, another point that we can take from this is, as we set out to accomplish the work of the Lord, that we shouldn't be surprised that opposition will come, and that it will come from both without and within. Now, I can understand opposition from without. Well, they're heathens. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're dumb, or, or, some, you know, or something like this. I can understand, if you will, opposition from without. But what's really challenging for me is opposition from within. For my fellow brothers and sisters in the faith that oppose me. Now look, I know that I'm not right in everything that I think or everything I do. Robin? Amen? I got an amen. All right? And I, I certainly am not suggesting that someone says, oh, I don't know about that. That doesn't seem like a good idea. I'm not, that's opposition from the enemy. You shouldn't be used. But I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm talking about is that opposition. You've checked your heart. You've gone through things. You've listened to wisdom. And then people are challenging your motives. They're challenging your thinking. uh, All manner of opposition against you, which just seems over the top. And you're like, where's this coming from? Why are you acting this way toward me? I'm your brother in the Lord. It's a little bit harder for me to understand the opposition from within. And I find myself thinking things like, hey, man, you're my brother or sister in the Lord. Why are you opposing me in the work that I'm trying to do? And that's frustrating. It's saddening, to be honest with you, and it can be a bit discouraging. I, I still recall, I'm 43 now, when I was about 18 years old, we did a ministry thing, uh, and I found myself sort of thrust into this position that I didn't want, believe me, uh, for this particular thing. Uh, and when all was said and done, somebody was challenging my motive, a Christian, a, a fellow believer, 
challenging my motives. Who does he think he is? Some 18-year-old kid, all this kind of stuff. And here I am today, and still today I have to say, well, love him, Lord. That's okay, Lord. You know, just bless him or whatever it may be. Still wrestling with that. The opposition from within, it hurts. But like Nehemiah, we continue to keep our eyes on Jesus and what Jesus has called us to do. And that's why we talked a few weeks ago about the importance of praying. Not just saying some quick prayer. It's certainly not saying, God, just bless it. Whatever I decide, you bless. Not those things. But to pray and to wait and to seek the Lord. That's why it's so important. Because when the opposition does come, if we've been through that period of prayer and waited on the Lord for His timing, then we can be certain, you know what, I know this is the Lord's will for me. And regardless of the opposition, regardless of the roadblocks that I have to get by. Otherwise, I think we would be tempted to just turn back at the opposition and say, you know what, it's not worth it. Or clearly the Lord can't be in it or something like that. Don't let opposition, whether it's inside the church or without, don't let it surprise you and don't let it dissuade you from the good thing that God has called you to be a part of. Right? Amen? All right, let's move on. Verse 11, we're going to continue the story. So it says... So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on, on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal under me to pass. Then I went in the night by the valley, and I inspected the wall, and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were due to do the work. So Nehemiah, he arrives in Jerusalem as much as he possibly can. He tries to keep things pretty quiet. Uh, now, he's the former chief of staff to the king of the world, so chances are he uh, aroused a little bit of a stir. And he arrives with these folks, but he doesn't immediately jump into action. And as we see earlier, Nehemiah, instead, he takes time to wait on the Lord and to wait on the Lord for the Lord's timing, and he begins to pray. So he comes to Jerusalem, and as we see there in verse 11, it says that he waits for three days. He allows time so that he can sort of get his bearings on the city, but I think also so that he can sort of get an idea of the pulse of the city or the people, a pulse of the people of the city. What are the people thinking? What are they feeling? Are the people discouraged? Why haven't they undertaken this before? Is he able to kind of get a feel for that there? And I think there's great wisdom with this, especially for a guy that is kind of an outsider. I know he's a Jew as well as all of them but he's an outsider to the city that is going to come into the city. I think there's great wisdom to wait there before he jumps in to lead and initiate change. And so he waits for three days and he's observing things. And then notice, after three days, it says that Nehemiah gets up in the middle of the night. Verse 12 says he begins to survey the land in the middle of the night. And notice, again, he does, or not again, but notice he does this without any fanfare. He doesn't have a big parade to go around, and I'm going to be your leader, and everybody follow me, and this is going to be wonderful. But it says that he told no one what his God had put in his heart for him to do. He would eventually, but right now things were in the early stages, and everything would have to come in due course. Now Charles Spurgeon, 
who among preaching uh, and being as uh, gifted as he was and capable and God used as he was, he also trained up many other pastors that would come after him and teach as well. And one of the things that Spurgeon suggested to his students, he said, we should be careful in telling others all that we are going to accomplish for God. And this is the phrase actually that he said. He said, if you want to serve God, go and do it. And then let other people find out about it afterwards. You have no need to tell what you are going to do. And I may add, there's no need for you to retell what you have already done. For very, very frequently, God withdraws himself when we boast of what is being done. It it sort of reminds me of the existential question. You've probably heard a form of it. If, If a ministry event happens and nothing was posted on Facebook about it, did it really occur? You know, the whole idea of the tree falling. You see, some of us, we struggle with that. This whole boasting in all that we're doing for God. And if that describes you, I would encourage you, take care not to do your work so that you may be seen by others. Remember Jesus' admonition? He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by other people. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And I've suggested it before, that God is not really interested in sharing His glory. And if you continue to step in and steal a little bit of God's glory for yourself, don't be surprised if God moves on from you and He begins to bless someone else or some other ministry that isn't so inclined to steal His glory. Nehemiah doesn't step out with all kinds of fanfare. I'm going to be the leader and this is what we're going to do and it's going to be great and everyone's going to know my name or anything like that. But he just goes out in the secrecy of the night surveys the city, gets an idea for things. The absence of fanfare, almost nobody with him, and simply takes in the situation. And no doubt, as he does so, he's praying the entire time. As we talked about last week, he's practicing that idea of constant communication between him and the Father that we spoke of, praying without ceasing, taking it all in, processing it all in prayer. And again, we see the characteristic of a godly leader A godly leader prays. And they pray not just when the whole congregation is gathered around, but they pray in the secret watches of the night season when the vast majority of people are sound asleep. And if you want to lead people as God would have you to lead people, then you have to be a person of prayer. Even if that means losing a little bit of sleep to do so. So are you presently leading others? Are you praying for them? And are you seeking God for wisdom to lead them? You know, maybe the people you're leading is just a small group of eight or ten people. Are you praying for them and seeking God's wisdom to lead them? Maybe it's a group of 30 or 40 children and their parents in the children's ministry. Are you praying for them and seeking God's wisdom? Maybe it's a ministry that encompasses a couple of hundred. Are you praying for them? And if you're not, why not? Now, praying may not be the key to leadership, but I would suggest to you it's the key to godly leadership And if you want to be a godly leader, you need to become a person of prayer. And Nehemiah demonstrates that again. Now let's continue. Verse 13 says, I went out by night to the various gates, the valley gate, down to the spring, to the dung gate, and I was just inspecting the walls. It says that they were broken down, that the gates were destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and passed the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal under me to pass. Then I went up by night by the valley, inspected the wall, and I turned back to where I started at the valley gate. And so there in the stillness of the night, presumably with nothing more 
than just the, the light of the moon to kind of illuminate his path, Nehemiah prayerfully sets out to survey the work of God that is in front of him. And you can see there, and I'll explain this process to you, he starts out by the valley gate. Now, if you think of Nehemiah like the face of a clock, the valley gate is basically about nine on the clock. And so he starts out right there at nine o'clock, if you will, and he begins to make his way counterclockwise coming to the dung gate. The dung gate would be about six o'clock on the face of that clock. Then he goes to the fountain gate, which is about five o'clock. Then it says he goes up through the Kidron Valley, which runs up all the way along the side, the eastern side of Jerusalem. And he's just surveying these things. And then finally, he makes his way back up past midnight, if you will, and heads back down again to the valley gate. And he took the whole thing. He encircled the city, praying the entire time, taking it in. Now, verse 16 says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews or the priests, the nobles or the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. This was not a victory lap for Nehemiah. If you look at verse 14 for a second there, it says, Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. The point with that phrase there, no room for the animal under me to pass, it's not that the space was too narrow for him to get by. The idea is that the debris was too numerous for his animal to safely traverse the area. The debris was too numerous. It was everywhere. The, gates, the debris is everywhere. The gates are burned. The walls are broken down. And I suspect that as Nehemiah and the few other men or so that are with him, as they're making this way around the city, that they were extremely silent as they did so. Pretty much mourning this process. This was, if you will, in some respects, like a funeral procession. Perhaps there were momentary breaks in the silence every now and then. As Nehemiah told one of his assistants, hey, would you jot down a note about this here? And would you jot down something about that over there? And they were just making their way around the city, taking it all in. Now there's a, a brief break in the action between verse 16 and verse 17. It could be as early as the next morning, but it's not immediate. But it happens, and verse 17 says, So I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now the them, in verse 17, that refers to the priests, the nobles, the officials, uh, and the rest. Uh, so he's informing these people. And while those leaders were sleeping, Nehemiah was up praying. And he was surveying the walls and he was developing a plan for how the Lord might lead. And now the Lord has led. So he gathers these people together. Maybe the next morning he does so. Maybe it was a week later, but whatever. He gathers them together and he lays out the vision. Verse 17 again says, So I said to them, you can see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, Come, here's the vision. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may suffer no longer derision. Now, I don't want to give, I'm talking about debris and gates burned and all this stuff. I don't want to give the impression that the, the city was uninhabitable. People are living there. The people had returned to the land. They had rebuilt the brazen altar. We looked at that in the book of Ezra. So the sacrifices are taking place and they're being offered. That's good, right? Portions of the temple had been erected again and the temple service uh, it was daily being completed. So you can look at Jerusalem and you can say, well, there's a number of things that are good. People could point to and say, well, look at all the good things that are happening here. Now, but I guess an argument could be made 
that some, and I would say, I guess an argument could be made that some are saying, well, you know, things are good enough. We have the sacrifice. We're back in the land. We're doing the, the priest have a job again. Things are good enough. But here's a question. Do you really want to be just good enough? Is that really what you want to strive for in life? That you're good enough? That the work that you do is good enough? And so, and then again, does God want us merely to be just good enough? I, I cannot imagine that that is the desire of your heart and certainly the desire of God's heart for us is that we would just be good enough. And Nehemiah could have come to Jerusalem, looked at some of the things that were taking place and said, well, it's not perfect, but it's good enough. But the reality is, when we say and settle for good enough, that we deceive ourselves. Now there are some that can't see the good in anything. Right? You know those people? Are you one of those people? Some of us, we can't see the good in anything, and that's not good, obviously. But there are others, and hear me out here, that only see the good, and they miss the opportunity for growth. And let me explain what I mean. And I don't think either of those are appropriate. So whether you're looking at your own life, or that of your kids that you're raising, or the class of students that you're teaching, or the ministry that you're overseeing, or the business that you're leading, or the church that you're leading, Sometimes we have to see past that which is good enough to that which might be and that which can be. And Alan Redpath, I like this comment that he made. He said, it's utter folly to refuse to believe that things are as good, I'll add that, or as bad as they really are. It's vital in any undertaking for God to know the worst for whenever there is to be a wonderful movement of the Spirit, it begins with someone like Nehemiah who was bold enough to look at facts to diagnose them, and then to risk to the task. So tonight, I'm going to be sharing at the State of the Church Address. And just like every President of the United States, I think, I don't know for sure, but has done so, at the start of the address, I'm going to say something like, my fellow Americans, the state of our union is strong. And indeed, the state of our church is strong. And good things are happening, and people are growing in the Lord, and we're seeing God's blessing on our efforts and His provision for our needs. But wouldn't you agree with me that it would be naive for us to conclude that we have arrived just because things are going okay? Certainly good enough is not good enough. And we are thankful for what God has done and is doing, but we know, if we're honest, that we can't be satisfied with the place to which we have currently come. Because we know we can go further as a people. We can go deeper. And we can all be further refined. And a visionary leader like a Nehemiah, he sees that. And he sees that about a Jerusalem. Yeah, it's okay. But Nehemiah notices, he takes notice of the good, but he also takes notice of the bad. Those things that continue to need to be changed. And so he gathers these leaders of Jerusalem together and he says something like this. He said, look, here's the situation. Things are not good enough. And God desires to do something better. And so we're going to be, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we're going to remove the shame that is upon his people. That's the task that is ahead of us. And he lays that out. And notice again, he says, let us. Nehemiah makes it clear he's in this with them. He's not coming as their Savior, but he's in this thing with them. And then as you look at verse 18, he begins to lay out the testimony of how God has been at work and how he found himself in this particular place. 18, the first portion of the verse says, And I told them of the hand of my God, that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. He, he says to them, this is what we're going to do. 
And this is how we're going to do it. He doesn't give them the specifics of the task. But then he says to them, and this is the testimony of how God has already been working. He's been at work. They may not know that. But he's been at work. He's been at work in my heart, moving. He's been at work at the heart of the king to accomplish these things. And you know what, friends? This is what he might say to them. He's chosen us to be a part of that work to finally get these walls rebuilt and remove the shame and the trouble from the Jewish people. Now, who knows? Perhaps when Nehemiah began speaking to these under-shepherds, these other leaders, maybe some of them began to roll their eyes. Maybe some of them gave out a great big sigh. Maybe some of them thought, oh, you know, we've heard this before. Every year it seems, or every decade it seems, somebody comes in with some big plans to make big changes. How come this time will be any different? Well, Nehemiah will answer that, almost anticipating that. This time it's going to be different because God is in this. And he says, look, here's how God has been working. Here's how God has been providing. Here's how He has been speaking as I have spent the last four months in prayer. We can do this. And notice their response. Those words, minor as they are in our passage of Scripture, verse 18b says, and they said, let's do it. Let's rise and build. So something about His words convinced them. It reminds me of the football coach who gives the big speech. Or We're in March Madness now, Grace doesn't know what March Madness is. We had a conversation the other day. March Madness here. Uh, it reminds me of the basketball coach's speech who gathers his guys around him or gals around him and says, we can do this. I know we're the 250th ranked team in the country and we have to take on undefeated Kentucky, but we can do this, he says. Now by now you know that the 17-17 and 17 Hampton Pirates had no chance against the 35-0 and 0 Kentucky Wildcats. And regardless of how inspiring the coach's speech was, I have a feeling some of the players ran out of the locker room thinking, we ain't going to win this thing. You know, this guy's crazy. Or whatever. And you know, sports speeches, they're cute and they're nice and, and they're motivational. But that's for a game. Here's Nehemiah. And as far as Nehemiah is concerned, we're not talking about some fun sporting event. Nehemiah is painting the picture of both what is and what could be and he begins to lay out how God is going to get them to do to get there to do it. And the people buy into that. And the people are enthused about that. And so the end of verse 18, it says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. I don't know exactly. It, it doesn't mean like this. You know, they started exercising it ever. It's like, let's do it. We're in this. Let's get out there and let's start to work. They, they run out of the locker room, if you will. Now, Nehemiah, we see, is a man of prayer which means we can safely assume he had been praying about this meeting as well. He prayed about what God would have him do. He prayed about his conversation with the king. He prayed about the city when he wandered around. He's a man of prayer. And so no doubt he prays about, Lord, I'm going to gather these leaders together and I'm going to share this vision with them. Lord, you got to work in their heart. you got to give me the ability to communicate in a way that they're going to hear it and uh, communicate in a way that they're going to receive it. You see, this is a very important meeting. Nehemiah knows, as we all know, he would never be able to accomplish this work if he tried to do it by himself. Nehemiah was going to need, not use, but need these leaders on board with him, and he needed them to know that he wasn't coming to condemn them for their, if you will, their past failures, but instead he was coming alongside of them to be a part of the solution. And so I suspect he prayed a prayer, God, move, please, Lord, move on the hearts of these leaders and let them know that I'm not coming here to condemn them, but that I come here with pure intentions. So Lord, move on the heart, prepare them to receive what I'm about to say. 
And the result of a prayer like that and the way that He came to them in humility is that these guys, their hearts are joined together with His heart. They're in concert with one another. They're in league with one another. Now, I can't say for certain, but I I suspect without a shadow of a doubt, just because I know the way that God works, that as Nehemiah began to share these things that were on his heart, that some of the guys that were there, if not all of the guys that were there, that was beginning to resonate in them and they were thinking, what did you just say? That's what God has been telling me for the last few weeks and I thought I was silly. You see, God doesn't work just over here, this guy, but he works in little pockets. And God has a way of bringing all of those pieces together to accomplish his grander work. And that's what it is. And so here's a guy that is saying, man, that confirms what God was doing. And as a result of Nehemiah's prayer, God was at work preparing each of the players' heart so that when the opportunity presented itself, they knew immediately that this was the Lord. And so they were immediately ready to get to work. As we saw in verse 18, they strengthened their hand for the good work. And I think we see a lot of leadership, wisdom, in the leadership decisions of Nehemiah in this little section of Scripture that we've looked at today. So let me remind you of a couple things. Number one, he notice, first, he takes notice of that which obviously needed to change. We cannot continue to live as a city where the walls are broken down and we are constantly at threat of being attacked. And I know it's been 150 years, but for some reason, the people that live here have gotten so accustomed to it that they don't notice it anymore. And so Nehemiah comes in and he sees what some have become blind to, the obvious need for change. That's the first thing. He takes notice of what obviously needs to change. Secondly, he doesn't come in to fix their problem. Instead, he approaches them as one of them and is prepared to get down to work to fix our problem. He's one of them. Third point is, Nehemiah asks for their partnership. That is, that he knows that this work can't get done without them. And unless they all work together, the task would just be too large. A third point. A fourth point, Nehemiah demonstrates wisdom in that rather than just focusing on the task, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild the wall and it's going to be a big wall and it's going to be great. That's the task. That's not the point of building a wall. The point of building the wall is the end of that verse and we're going to remove the shame that is upon the Jewish people. So rather than just coming in and focusing on a task, he focuses on the reason for the task, to remove the shame and trouble from the city and its people. Now that's something I can get behind. I don't care about the wall. I don't care about a building. I don't care about this or that. I want to get behind something that's going to have purpose. Well, the purpose is we're going to remove the shame. Fifth, Nehemiah wisely makes this, notice, God's project, not his own. This wasn't about him. It wasn't about building him up. This wasn't going to become Nehemiah's wall or anything like that. This wasn't about making his name great. This was a task from God, and it was for God. And Nehemiah emphasizes that. And the last point that I noticed is, Nehemiah demonstrates to them how God had already been in this, and that he would continue to be in this. That God's hand was on this, and they were being invited to participate. So there's six quick principles of leadership that we can keep in mind as we fulfill the areas that God has placed on us to lead and to influence others. Now I want to close out with this this morning. I just want to make one point of application. As we began our study, I, I mentioned to you that the walls that encompassed the city, that in sort of a metaphorical way, they could speak of the walls that we erect in our lives to separate us and to protect us from the ways of the world. And so with that being said, then we can apply the metaphor by asking this question. 
when was the last time that you took survey of the land? When was the last time you surveyed the walls of the city of your life, so to speak? When was the last time you encircled the city and you took note of the various breaches? You know, and let's be honest, sometimes we have blind spots, don't we? Sometimes we have blind spots that we've lived amongst the debris for so long that we don't even notice any longer, really, that it is there. And so, here's a bold move to, take, to consider. And that is asking another to take a survey of the walls that are around your life. A trusted friend or a brother or sister in the faith. Someone to just come around and say, hey, you know what? Would you just give me an idea of what your sense is in my life? I know that there are these walls that I've erected in my life as I've been growing and walking with the Lord, but I suspect I've let some of them fall into disrepair and that it hasn't been very healthy for me, but I also suspect that I've been blinded to those things. Would you take an inventory of my life and would you speak truth into my life for me here? Well, if somebody were to do that, what do you think they would find? And what recommendations do you think they might make? And so this week, what I would like to encourage you to do is either you yourself just sort of take inventory of your life, the things that you're listening to, the places that you're going, the things that you're watching, the things that you're reading, the influences you're allowing to come into your life, and just sort of take inventory of your life and determine if some of those are broken down walls, so to speak. They're openings that you're allowing the ways of the world to come into your life and to take away the peace that the Lord would have for you to have as a follower. And for some of us, perhaps it would be to take the bold step to ask a trusted brother or sister to do that for you. Remember, the walls are for our protection. And you might be getting by, as we've said before, but you're probably not thriving if the walls are broken down. And as we've said again and again, that's the Lord's desire for us, that we we would have a walk that would thrive and that we would be continually at peace with Him and walking with the right spirit. Amen? Amen. Father, we, uh, that's challenging, Lord. I don't want anyone looking into my life. And Lord, I don't even really want to look into my life. I'm comfortable with where I am. And Lord, yet I, even in saying that for myself, Lord, I believe that You would have us to do so because You'd, you'd have us be in a better place, so to speak, and to be going into a, a deeper Uh, walk with you. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you this week. And and Lord, we do pray, Lord, even if our natural tendency is to turn away from that, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself in such a great way that we would keep on, even though our, our face keeps turning away from you, we would return to you and say, all right, Lord, here I sit exposed. And Lord, when you, uh, you reveal some areas that could be brought into submission to you, that we would respond in obedience. So Lord, we're asking that this would be a week of growth for us. That we wouldn't return here next week as the exact same person that we were this week. Lord, but that we would be in a deeper and a better place with you as uh, this week goes on. So challenge us, Lord. Convict us. And Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit that that conviction would be such that it drives us to the cross and not away, not in condemnation but to the place of the cross itself where our, our forgiveness, our sin, our sanctification, all those things have been purchased and bought. And as you said on the cross, it is finished. So Lord, we give ourselves to you this week in Jesus' name.